Today's scripture reading is from Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5 is on page 154 in your pew Bibles. Joshua 5, verses 2 through 15. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gebeth Haroloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of the military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after. They ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. May God bless the reading of his word. So my bad. The text Really, what we're going to look at today is Joshua 5, verses 2 through 12. We'll stop at verse 12, because arguably verses 13 to 15 uh, belong to the next section. You know, these chapter divisions are not original to the text. They were put in there, oh, about uh, 1100 A.D. So they're sometimes not in the right place, and I forgot to, uh, I actually wrote it wrong in the bulletin. So what we're going to do is look at uh, 2 to 12 this morning. Now, it's, I would say about this section... There is probably not a passage in Scripture that is easier to understand than this one. Now, this is really very basic. There's only two things that happen here. The content is really easy to pick up. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. And then verse... Ten, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. 
So the basic content of this passage could not be simpler. They circumcised the men, then they celebrated Passover. Very simple. There's probably not an easier passage to decipher in the whole of the Old Testament. Now, at the same time, there's probably not a passage in the Old Testament or the Bible that is so clearly irrelevant to us today as this one. You know, our whole problem with the Old Testament is that it's old. And here they are, circumcision and Passover. Now, which is a Christian church. We do not require circumcision. We have child dedication, but, but we don't advocate that you circumcise your babies. And we never celebrate Passover. Well, a few of us do privately, but it's not a Christian practice, particularly. I mean, we don't prohibit either, but they're not common Christ, uh, Christian practices. So what do you do with this passage? Now, you know, basic preaching 101 class in seminary tells you, you got about two minutes to connect with an audience or boom, they're sleeping or drifting. So, so I'm almost up to my two minutes. Yeah, yeah, here we go. I, I, apparently I exceeded my two minutes already. All right. How does any of this? Now, you know, so I started thinking, well, you know, circumcision gives a lot of room for humor. And some of you know my self-edit function may not be overdeveloped. And look at verse 2. Make flint knives. Really? If you're going to get circumcised as an adult, you want the guy using a knife made out of stone? <laughs> and then look at the rest of verse 2. Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again? Really? A double circumcision? I don't think so. Maybe the translation is not all that good. So there's room for humor. And in fact, you know, I started thinking about this in a moment of desperation. And you know, a lot of stand-up comics are Jewish. It's not just Jerry Seinfeld, but there's a lot of Jewish stand-up comics. And they all got a whole battery of jokes about circumcision. So I got online and downloaded. And some of them are even clean enough to use in Christian company. But I'm thinking... Is this really what we want to do, is stand-up comic routine? You know. See, part of why this seems so distant from us is that it's ritual. You've got uh, circumcision, you've got Passover, you've got two rituals. And we are, as whatever it is, is it because we're Americans? Is it because we're modern slash postmodern? What is it? We're really not into rituals. Think about it. As I was doing the last minute edits of this this morning, I got on, you know, I got on YouTube and I wanted to have some Christian music playing. So, you know, I, I don't know that many songs. So I just uh, got on YouTube and, and searched for Amazing Grace. And here's what I found. And I listened to a whole variety of Amazing Grace while I'm doing the last minute edits. I could not find a standard version of Amazing Grace. I mean, I didn't search the whole of YouTube, but I went through 10 or 12 different clips. And it was all highly individualistic. You know, everybody's own impression or interpretation of Amazing Grace. Why? 
You know, because we want to be individualistic. We, we, it's, it's not real unless it's coming from my heart. It's not real unless it reflects my own personal take on things. And so that's just the opposite of doing something because of ritual. You know, ritual is the whole church in all times, in all places, did exactly this. That's ritual. But we, we don't want that. We want an individual expression because it has to be spontaneous. It has to be emotional. It has to be unique to me in order to be authentic. Authenticity is what we want. Now, the classic, I mean, the, 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 the most brilliant example of this was a version of Amazing Grace, which has a famous songwriter, singer, in the woods with a piano. And it's autumn, so the leaves are falling in his piano. Now, I don't know. This, you know, we got a good pianist, and the piano sounds pretty good. I don't know how it would sound with, you know, leaves inside of it. And then, and then there's rain falling. And I, you know, at least this one seems to have a wood structure. I, wood's, you know, rain's not really good for wood. And then it's interspersed with pieces of video, uh, of pieces of, you know, this guy playing in the woods with the leaves falling in the autumn and the rain, and he's playing this song. And it's interspersed with uh, reenactment of the First Continental Congress. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is that really what John Newton had in mind? Notice I didn't say Isaac Newton. I said, John Newton wrote the song. Isaac Newton, for all of you science nerds. Different guy. Uh, you know what I'm thinking? So this is really, it's got to be unique. And it's got to express my emotions. You know, it's got to be special to me. Or think about another example of where Americans are anti-ritualistic. Think about living together before marriage. You know, what's the argument? I don't need a ceremony. I don't need a piece of paper. I don't need a ritual to say that I'm in love with you. You know, what defines where married is? Because I love you. You see, it's me and it's my emotion. And that's what provides the connection. Not some ritual we do in some church in front of a bunch of other people and with a license. See, we're, ritual is just not our thing. It's not authentic. Emotion is authentic. Or how about in the weddings themselves? Uh, you know, what's the key part nowadays to a wedding? Well... Not even just nowadays. I remember when my wife and I were getting married, and I didn't, ver I didn't you know, get her permission to share this, so I'll just talk from my perspective. <laughs> she just happened to be there. But <laughs> it wasn't entirely random, but anyway. Um, we, had a, we had to have a discussion with the pastor, you know, because we were getting married in Malaysia, though we met in Australia, and we dated and courted in Australia, and we were coming back to Malaysia to get married because her family was from Malaysia. And we, I, we arrived in town, we have to have this conversation with the pastor about the service. And we wanted this wedding to be authentic, you know. So we had written our own vows. Right? And the pastor was a little befuddled by this, because he was a long-standing Methodist pastor, and he said, and his thought was, why aren't the vows everybody else says good enough for you? Well, that's just dead ritual, right? We want it to be authentic. We want it to be unique. So we have to write our own vows. Even though I have such a bad memory, I had to write them on my hand. And even then, I forgot to say them until Irene started. And then I had to start reading my palm to catch up with it. You know. See, we have this anti-ritual sentiment in our culture. 
Or how about worship services? You know, if all you've ever done is worshiped in a church like this, you won't realize. When I went to study, oh, I have a copy of it here, but I forgot to bring it up, never mind. When I went to study in grad school, Irene and I met at an Anglican training college. And really, I had a hard time worshiping at an Anglican training college, Anglican seminary, because they worship out of books. Not just sing songs out of books, but the whole worship. And it's all written out. The prayers are even written out. And you, you know, it takes a little training. After a year, I still couldn't figure out which book to use on which day, and you know, which page to turn to after which page. But it's all a matter, if any of you grew up in a Catholic church, similar thing, you know, you, you go from this page to that page to that page to that page, and you work your way through, and everything's scripted for you. So that way, the whole church in all places can pray and worship together the same way. And the Bible text is chosen by some headquarters, and you all preach the same basic text. But, you know, we don't do that. That's too formal. That's too ritualistic. That's not authentic enough. You know, and there's churches that would not have a worship service without saying the Apostles' Creed. And I've been here 12 years, and I don't think we've said the Apostles' Creed a single time. And, and the Nicene Creed, or you could swap off with the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or, or the Chalcedon Creed. And if you come from a Lutheran tradition or a Methodist tradition, you'd be familiar with that. But, but, you know, often somehow it seems like that's not authentic. We don't even want to write out our prayers. Because prayers that are authentic are spontaneous. And, you know, I once was asked by a, the worship leader at our training Anglican school if I would pray that day. And he said, well, he asked me the day before, actually. He said, will you pray tomorrow at worship service? And I said, well, sure. He said, I'm sorry I didn't give you enough time to prepare. I thought, I'm supposed to prepare this prayer? I, you know, I walk in, you ask me to pray, I'll pray. Well, you know, why do I need a day's notice? Why, why is a day not enough notice to prepare for prayer? Very strange to my mind. And he says, oh, some people here prepare a week before they pray in public. And he thought, I was very strange. You know, so, so really the whole question is, it comes back to this, all of these things share in common. Is what, what do we do with ritual? And basically we ignore it. Uh, here's another example. This week, I was reading a book on basic Christianity, Christian discipleship. And the author was describing a struggle, a struggle he has. He grew up in the church, maybe. He's been a pastor for a while. And the whole thing just seemed, it was just so, it seemed like so much obligation. Got to do this, got to do that. And he was struggling with this all. And he figured the American church, his church, the American church, he's a mega church pastor. So much guilt and obligation and got to do this, got to do that. So he said, well, the whole point of his book, most of his book, it, it, first he explains the problem, then his solution is this. He wrote a prayer. And he said, I've been using this prayer for years, and it really changed my life. And then I started using it in my church, and, and it changed my church's worship. And so now he releases this prayer to the public, and, say, and the whole book is about, breaks this prayer down, four couplets, you know, and he exp- it spends two chapters explaining the first couplet, and the two chapters, the second couplet, and go, and go forth through the whole prayer. And I'm thinking, hmm, this prayer is going to be revolutionary. Okay, but before I want to introduce it here, I I want to make sure it's biblical, not just its content, but its balance, you know. And he's taking a particular approach to grace, and I'm thinking, is that balance? You know, is this biblical? And I thought, 
Wouldn't it have been so much simpler if we're going to use a, a, a ritual formulaic prayer? Wouldn't it be so much simpler if Jesus had only given us a prayer that we could use? Rather than having this off. And then I wouldn't have to evaluate it because it came from Jesus. I could just pray it. And then I could spend a whole book exploring that prayer. But you see, somehow I guess it's not authentic if it comes from Jesus. It really has to come from me in my life. So, ritual. Here we have two rituals. Circumcision and Passover. And the main focus on the, the whole passage, the main focus is circumcision. How is that at all relevant to us? How is circumcision at all relevant to us? So what we want to look at as we look at this passage, we want to look at, I want to answer, address three questions or four. Why Joshua circumcised the people? Secondly, why Joshua chose that moment to circumcise them? Because it's not an obvious good choice of time. Thirdly, why circumcision was necessary but not sufficient? And then fourthly, how any of this applies to us when the New Testament clearly says we are not obliged to circumcise our children. So first question, why does Joshua circumcise the people? Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. Why does Joshua circumcise the Israelites? Most basically and fundamentally, because God said so. But there's something going on behind the scenes here. Remember Genesis 17. We won't look at it in detail now, but I gave you the page numbers and you can look at it later on. Remember Genesis 17? When God came to Abraham for the third time, he came to Abraham in Genesis 12, made promises. He came to Genesis, he came to Abraham in Genesis 15 and made a covenant. And then he comes to Abraham a third time in Genesis 17. And what does he say? He says, look, here's my covenant, here's my promises. I'm going to bless you. But here's the one thing you must do in response. A covenant is always a two-sided relationship. God says, I'm going to bless you. Now here's your requirement. And he says, you must circumcise your children. It goes like this, uh, Genesis 17. And he says that like four or five times to Abraham. Uh, Genesis 17, verse 10. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you that is eight years old must be circumcised. Including those born in your household, or those bought with money from a foreigner, those who are your servants and slaves, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. God says, my promises to you are everlasting, provided, provided. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. When God formed Israel as a nation, he said, circumcise your children. Either cut off the foreskin or you will be cut off from my grace and blessing. This was a non-negotiable to God. God told Abraham from the very beginning, circumcised. And then maybe you remember some of you, the bizarre little incident in Moses' life in Exodus 
chapter 4. When God has called Moses, Israel's in, in captivity in Egypt, and God's called Moses to go back. Israel, uh, Moses has fled Egypt. Now God calls Moses to go back to Egypt. Challenge the Pharaoh. Let my people go. And deliver the people. And Moses says, I don't want to go. And God says, go. And Moses says, hey, you've got the wrong guy. I can't speak well. And God says, go. So finally, Moses agrees to go, and he starts back. And then one night, one day, mid-journey, the text says, God came out to kill him. Now, the NIV says kill Moses, but actually the footnote says, or it just says kill him. It's probably the baby, Moses' son. Moses, against his will, is doing what God said. And goes back, and mid-journey, God sends an angel to kill Moses' son. And so Moses' wife, who's a Midianite, not even a Jew, Moses' wife, Midianites practice circumcision. She diagnosed what the problem was. She circumcised the baby, and the angel departed, left them alone, and they were fine again. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill the baby. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched his feet with it. So the Lord left him alone. When God said to Joshua, circumcise your children, Joshua doesn't say, this is a dead ritual. Joshua knows the story of Abraham. Joshua knows that if you don't circumcise your children, you get cut off from the promises of God. When God says to Joshua, circumcise the Israelites, he doesn't say this is a meaningless formulaic ritual. He knows the story of Moses. And he knows that God almost killed Moses' own son. Because Moses had not circumcised his son. So when God says circumcise Israel, Joshua does it. In fact, you know, for us the question is, why would God ask this? Why would God care? But for the writer of Joshua, the question is not, why did God ask for this to be done? The question for the writer of Joshua is, given Abraham, given Moses, given how seriously God takes this, why wasn't it done already? Look at how the author of Joshua, verse, one and, verse 2 and 3. You know, the, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives circumcised. So verse 3, Joshua made flint knives and circumcised. Now the author has to spend the next five or six verses explaining why it was that Israel needed to be circumcised. Well, not why it should be done, but why hasn't it been done? They had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Why weren't they circumcising their children? What surprised the author was not that God required circumcision. What surprised the author was that God's people hadn't done it when it was so obvious he required it. And so he spends verses 4 to 8 explaining why, how they had neglected this for so long when it's so important to God. Now, one thing the text doesn't tell us is why circumcision matters. Why this ritual? The text never tells us. We can hypothesize. Uh, maybe it's purely arbitrary. You know, it, it doesn't really matter what ceremony God chose to designate us, to designate his people as his people. But once he chose it, they had to do it. 
you know, maybe he could have chosen walking around a maypole. Maybe he could have chosen, I don't know, any kind of ritual dance, you know, like the end zone dance. Right? By the way, you notice the thing about the end, end zone dance? Again, it illustrates ritual. Everybody that dances in the end zone has a dance, but it can't match anybody else's dance because it has to be unique. Again, the American approach to ritual. You know, he could have chosen any. Maybe it's just arbitrary, but he chose this one. Or maybe it's because it was cultural. You know, other other ethnic groups in the in that time practiced circumcision. Nobody did it to babies. They did it as a coming of age, you know, a, a puberty ceremony. But maybe you know, God wanted to take something they understood as a religious ceremony, and then He adapted it so it was a unique religious ceremony. Now we're going to do it on babies. And maybe it's because circumcision threatens the most private and personal, unique part of a man's life. You know, it becomes a daily reminder that I am part of God's people and that he is part of my promises. This is who I am. You know, we don't know why God chose this particular right. Ultimately, we can't be sure why. But we know that God did choose it for them. And so they did it because God said so. And because not doing it would say, I am taking myself out of the realm of God's people. Now, what does all of this have to do with us? You know, here in the New Testament, it's quite clear. The New Testament is quite clear that circumcision is no longer the sign of being God's people. So what does any of this have to say to us? I think you all realize that God has given us a sign of his people today, right? What does, Matthew, what does Jesus say in his last words in Matthew? Matthew 28, verse 19. Go and make disciples. Go and convert people. Go and, and have them give their lives to Christ. Go and teach them to believe and to follow me. But he adds a ritual to it. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And now in the New Testament times, baptism becomes the ritual of initiation into the people of God. And the, you read the book of Acts, and almost every time, the text is explicit, almost every time, somebody believed, they were baptized. They believed, they were baptized. It's not a dead ritual. For some reason, God has chosen baptism. Now, we don't know why. Maybe it's because in Jewish culture at the time, dunking somebody in water was something you did with converts to Judaism, you know, Gentile converts to Judaism. Or some of you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community. They practice baptisms, regular washings, because of the symbolism of, of washing, like bathing, washing away sin. Maybe it's the metaphor of dead and, and live. You, you go into the water as if you're drowning and you come up alive again. You know, and that's what, a symbol of what happens to us when we come to Christ. We, we don't know why God chose baptism. All we know is God did choose baptism. The real question is not why God chose it. The real question is, from Joshua chapter 5, verses 4 to 8 is, given that God has chosen it and commanded it, why would any of us not do it if we're God's people? It's less a point about what baptism means than it is a point about what not getting baptized means. Joshua, chapter 5, Genesis 17, Abraham, Exodus 4, Moses, not getting baptized says, I am not part of the people of God. And that's fair enough. If, you're, if you haven't ever given your life to Christ, don't get baptized. 
But if you've given your life to Christ and you're still not baptized, Joshua 5 would say, what's this all about? What's going on here? Genesis 17, Abraham, Exodus 4, Moses, Joshua 5, verses 4 to 8. How, they were Jews and they weren't circumcised? You're really a Christian, a believer, and you're not baptized? What's this all about? So why did Joshua circumcise the people? Not just because God had said so, but because this is the covenant between us and God. God's blessings. And God says, circumcise, baptize. Now the question comes up. Why would Joshua circumcise the people right now? You know what's going to come, right? They're just about to enter. They're just about to go into battle. They've invaded a new country, and there's people living there. They're going to have constant wars. And God says, hold on, don't go to war yet. Circumcise first. Now, think about this for a minute, all right? No, Irene grew up, without her permission, Irene grew up in a neighborhood in Malaysia where you had integrated neighborhood. You know, you had Malays, you had Indians, you had Chinese. And Malays practice circumcision. And it's, again, as in throughout Muslim history, teenagers, coming of age, puberty. And it was always kind of like a stinger, stinger, stinger joke between the Chinese and the Indians when their Malay friends got circumcised. Because they'd walk around slowly bent over for three or four days afterwards. You know, it's painful. Now here they're about to go to war. Remember uh, Genesis uh, 34? When Jacob's daughter, um, Dinah, was, um, you know, um, what was it? A Shechemite. A Shechemite uh, seduced Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And her brothers found this to be an insult to their family honor. And then the Shechemite actually wanted to marry Dinah, and so the brothers wanted revenge, and they said, okay, you know, you can marry our daughter, our sister, provided first you all get circumcised, because, you know, God doesn't allow us to marry uncircumcised people. And so the Shechemite fellow was so determined to marry this woman, so deeply in love with her, that not only did he get circumcised, he made his whole clan get circumcised, his whole town got circumcised. And three days later, when they were still in pain, the Jacob's sons invaded and killed them all because they couldn't fight back. And so we read this and we think, well, okay, they should be circumcised. But now? Really? Just as we're about to go to war? When our enemies could attack us? So why now? In some respects, it's the worst possible timing. But but take a look at Genesis 5, I mean, the uh, Joshua 5, verse 9. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What was the reproach of Egypt? The reproach was that they were God's people and they had not been circumcised. And today, God rolled away that reproach. Any time is an appropriate time to roll away God's reproach. More than that, take a look at verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Now, we don't know our Bibles well enough to know what the point of that is. But here's the thing. Exodus chapter uh, 12, verses 48 to 49. I put it in your bulletin. Exodus chapter 12 says, Nobody can celebrate Passover without first being circumcised. 
And they're about to celebrate Passover. And God has said, you can't do that unless you're first circumcised. What's the logic? Passover is a recurring feast. Once a year, God's people celebrate Passover. And it reminds them of what God had done for them. But it reminds them they are God's people. Under his blessings. Living under his forgiveness. And every year they celebrate Passover. And it's a recurring festival. Celebrating their membership in God's people. So why does circumcision have to come first? Because circumcision is the initiation rite into God's people. You can't celebrate being something until you actually become that. So you are circumcised. That's an initiation to God's people once at the beginning. And then every year they celebrate Passover. And it's a renewal of their relationship with God. It's a celebration of this existing relationship. So first baptism, first circumcision, and then Passover. Now, this church has a practice that I hadn't seen before I came here. Well, actually, let me correct that. Uh, you'd see it in the Catholic Church, and you'd see it in the Anglican Church, uh, I'm not, maybe even in the Methodist. But you wouldn't see it typically in independent churches. This church, every time when I serve communion, uh, our church tradition, our church practices, I must say to you, if you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, do not participate in communion. That's a common one. But if you have not yet been baptized, do not participate in communion. Meditate instead while the rest of us participate in communion, and then come see me afterwards to get baptized. Why? There's a perfectly good theological reason for it. It's not common practice in evangelical churches, but there's an important theological reason for it. Is that how do you celebrate being in an organization you haven't actually, a community, you haven't actually joined? Baptism is the rite of initiation. Communion is the rite of celebration of membership. You are part of the people of God. And baptism is the, the ritual. It's the initiation rite to join the people of God. So there's a good theological reason for it. I wouldn't be doing it. What I hadn't realized until looking at this passage is that there's a good biblical reason for it. Just as God told the people, first circumcision, then Passover. This is also the pattern of the New Testament. First baptism and then communion. Communion celebrates our membership. Baptism celebrates our coming into membership. The final point I want to make here is a little safeguard. The text, Joshua 5 doesn't say this, but elsewhere in Scripture it does. Lest this emphasis be misunderstood or misconstrued or, or, or just overlooked. Circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New, these are necessary signs of being God's people. But they are not sufficient signs. The classic example goes back several decades, but it was in the movie Godfather. Maybe some of you have seen it. Godfather was the first of the gross movies, you know, the first of the violent movies. You know, a lot of people stayed away sometimes to, because it was just too violent. And sometimes you see it now on replay and it's kind of mundane. But you know why he was called the Godfather, right? There's a, there's a pun there and it comes out, or double meaning, uh, and it comes out at the end of the movie because at the very end of the movie, the mafia Don has ordered a hit. And they juxtapose a video of the hit on one of his rivals 
with him standing in as a godfather at a baptism in a Catholic church. And so he's a godfather in two senses. He's a mafia don. And he's, he's a godfather for a child being baptized in the church. You know, and wherever the church is firmly entrenched, you can get, develop this mentality that all I need to do is go through the rituals. And Israel slipped into this. You know, the one danger was they would not bother with the ritual, as in Joshua, before Joshua 5. Another danger is they do the ritual and they think that's enough. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God warns them, it's not enough to do the ritual. And if all you have to do is the ritual and there's no faith and there's no obedience, there's only the ritual of circumcision, there's no faith and there's no obedience, then you're going to go into exile. God says, I'll put you under judgment. God says what's really needed is not circumcision of the flesh. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Circumcision of the flesh is not enough. It must be accompanied by circumcision of the heart. But even where there is circumcision of the heart, circumcision of the flesh is still necessary in the Old Testament. And we could say the same thing about baptism today. Baptism does not make anybody a Christian. First there's faith, and then there's baptism. But the New Testament knows nothing of people who would say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want particularly to get baptized. The New Testament knows nothing of this. Faith is essential, but it comes to expression in baptism. Where there's baptism, there may not be faith. There needs to be faith. But where there's faith, there needs to be baptism. The one caveat to all of this parallel between circumcision and baptism is this. We don't baptize babies in this church, in our tradition. And and I'll explain why. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of being a member of the people of God. Baptism in the New Testament is a sign of being a member of the people of God. But here's the difference. In the Old Testament, you were born into the people of God. In the New Testament, you come into the people of God through faith. So in the Old Testament, they baptized all their male babies that were born. In the New Testament, we baptize all those who profess faith in Christ. Now, some of you may have been brought up in a Catholic or an Anglican or a Methodist or a Presbyterian tradition where they baptize babies. We don't stand in criticism of that. And if you ever come to this church or seek to join this church, I've had Presbyterians, people who were baptized as babies. I had a Presbyterian fellow come to me. His father was a Presbyterian pastor. He was baptized as a baby. And he said, look, I want to express my personal faith and commitment to Christ. I'd like to be baptized. And the policy of this church is no. Your parents were practicing Christians. They raised you in their faith. We accept the legitimacy of their tradition. So what we'd worked out instead was the Presbyterian equivalent. We worked out confirmation. So if you have been baptized in families that were practicing Christian and you were raised in the faith, we don't seek to rebaptize anybody. But if you've come to faith and you've never been baptized, Joshua 5 asks, why not? Abraham asks, why not? Moses asks, why not? 
And in chapter 5, verse 2, God asks, why not? Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. If you've given your life to Christ and you've never been baptized, see Pastor David at the end of the service or email him this week. He looks after arranging the baptism in this church and the baptism class. It's a curiosity from scriptural perspective. Why would any believer not be baptized? It's a curiosity that's very easily remedied. Let's pray together. You know, Father, sometimes, you know, we don't mean any offense to you, and we don't mean to ignore your word. Sometimes it's just we've been so shaped by our culture, we don't even realize it. So, Father, we thank you for your word, which tells us these things matter, even if they don't matter to our culture, even if we don't know why they matter. They matter to you. So we ask you to be with us. We thank you for this reminder of Scripture, even of a small, what seemingly small thing, that's a big thing to you. So, Father, work. Work in our midst that we might obey you with the things that you call us to do, whether they seem to us big or small, whether we understand the rationale or not. We thank you for your work in our lives, and we seek to honor you for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.